Tell me then if the doors were the first political thing you did. Yes, they and, were. And, and <laughs> then obviously you have gotten way more involved. Tell me what happened and how you started then. Well, after I met the Klansman in D.C., uh, the ex-Klansman, I might add, you know, uh, my great-grandfather, we, it reminded me of a story I was told as a child. My great-grandfather was almost killed by the Klan. Uh, he had traded a man, a mule or a horse or something like that, lived down in DeGray community down on the other side of Arkadelphia, and uh, they had had a falling out over the, the sale or the exchange of this, this animal, and in the middle of the night, well, the, the guy went to town. He got mad at my great-grandfather, went to town, and said that my great-grandfather was beating his wife and not feeding his children. And so my grandfather then would tell me, as I grew up, that this story, that they were asleep in the cabin one night. They were very poor, didn't have a front door. They had a quilt over the front door of their cabin and said they heard horses come up. And my grandfather was a little boy at the time and said that, he saw the quilt thrown back, you know, from the door, and a man walked in with a torch in his hand, and they grabbed my grandfather by the ankles and pulled him out across the dirt floor and tied him to a tree in the front yard and horse-whipped him and thought they killed him. Just horse-whipped him half to death. Hmm. And he said that my, my grandmother, my great-grandmother the next day, well, of course, they cut him down and brought him in and nursed his wounds. She had to hitch the wagons up all by herself because he was too little, and my great-grandfather was half dead and go into town to clear his name. And so I've heard that clan story in my family, and my grandfather used to cry, a full-grown man used to cry every time he'd talk about it. So it terrorized him, apparently. Um, I've never forgotten that story, and after meeting the guy in D.C., I decided that I was gonna talk about some clan things. Uh, people around here act like they're afraid to talk about the clan. and in my hometown, I remember when the clan came to town and had rallies when I was young. Uh, and so I thought it was something that I wanted to address. And, you know, I'm not saying that people are walking around with white sheets on anymore. You know, to me, it's a mentality. It's a mindset that I'm talking about now. And from what I saw when we were fighting against that horrible law and that horrible bill, um, I saw that mentality again. And it, it reminded me of that. So I had some pieces, the, some antique pieces that I wanted to work with, and I started talking about Klan. And it was really interesting because I had some childhood friends tell me, I don't know why you're doing that. They're nothing anymore. I still hear that. They're nothing anymore. And I'm like, well, not now. Their numbers are actually growing. They have Klan camp at Harrison, Arkansas for children every single summer. Over 30-something kids came two years ago and even more last year. So it's just that mindset. And when you teach that level of disrespect and hatred toward another person, then it just keeps on going. Then their children grow and teach their children. You know what I mean? And so I started just doing more and more pieces. And then it's, you know, you kind of pick your battles. There's always going to be something going on. But uh, things that were near and dear to my heart, I started addressing. And if things didn't calm down after a little while, when I would see something going on in the news and they're raising an uproar, if it didn't start settling down a little bit, then I would start looking more into it and seeing why it wasn't settling down. And then I would try to do a project. I've just learned that a visual project, a, a visual message resonates more. We're so inundated these days with, you know, digital media and all this stuff, you know, the internet, social media, everything, to where you have what, maybe a Gosh, I know I have maybe a 10-second attention span. Some people might have more than I do. Um, but something you see 
it, it resonates more. Uh, newspapers are at an all-time low. We used to get our news from the newspapers, and you know, you'd have a photograph, or George Fisher, the cartoonist, I, I love using him as an example, because he could take something so simple and draw it out, and people would go, oh, oh, that's what that means, yeah. And I just think that art is so powerful, and I believe that that still works. And I, I think that that's why my work has gotten so much of a positive response, uh, some negative, but, but mostly positive, because it makes people think. And I just want people to think before they act. And even I struggle with that. I'm only human. I get all fired up every now and then. But after a few hours, I start thinking things through and realizing that a level head is the best way to handle things. And it's hard. It's very, very difficult. Uh, and sometimes I don't achieve that, but I try. But I think that, that um, that's why the body of work has been so popular and so, so powerful. It was very successful in New York, and I'm, I'm, really, I'm really glad. Um, the fact I'm talking to you is kind of a big deal to me. I turned down a lot of interviews, because I do, and I will not. I will not stand up and talk, do an art talk behind a podium. The one thing I cannot stand is somebody to sit up there and tell me what this art is supposed to mean. I want to see the art and feel what it's supposed to mean. I would love, I want to hear what the artist has got to say, you know, but I don't, I just don't want to be spoon fed, I guess is what I'm saying. So I don't want to do that to anyone else. That's why I'm very careful how I write my descriptions. I want them to be short, sweet, and to the point. And I think so far, so far that's worked out very well. Tell me about some of your most recent pieces. Oh gosh, I'm going to pull them up here. <laughs> I'm kind of prolific. I kind of just keep going. Well, tell me so. about this, um, the one with the woman and the flag. It was three-dimensional, and yes. then now it's two-dimensional. Uh, tell us about the three-dimensional version and then why you decided to paint it. You know, I took a break from painting after 20-something years. I really got burned out. I did. I thought about burying my paintbrushes in the backyard two years ago. I was really getting tired of it. I started feeling almost like a machine. I was doing so many paintings, and they were selling, which is great. But, you know, sometimes it... And I, the, the older I get as an artist, yes, I want to pay my mortgage. But I also realized that it's not always about money. And I think a lot of people don't realize that, but it's really not. Nothing really is all about money. Money, you can't take it with you when you die. You know, the one thing you can take with you when you die, my grandmother always said, is your reputation. And what, what do you really leave behind? And I've never forgotten that. I hope I, hope I leave a, a message of change in a positive way when I go. But I started feeling very, I don't know, it just it was starting to not feel right to me. And so when I was able to start working with some 3D objects, it, I really got excited again. I, I felt very tactile. I felt really involved in it. I was sweating. I was cutting my hands up and having to get tetanus shots. I was having to get stitches. I've had a lot of stitches the past two years. Um, I felt my art for the first time. That's the deepest. I, I really went deep. And I've never been that deep before. So I really liked it. Now, so fast forward two years, this piece uh, with the woman coming out from behind the flag. What's it called? Rise. Um, that's a sculpture piece that is still on exhibit in New York right now at the LGBT Center on 13th Street, Street in Manhattan. And it's a very powerful piece. But I thought, you know, I've got all this canvas laying around and I'm feeling not quite as weird about my, my painting anymore. 
and so I decided just to, to give it a whirl. And since then, I have had cataract surgery. I had a genetic cataract. Um, it was a very aggressive one that you get when you're younger. And I was wondering why my vision was getting so bad. I was actually legally blind in my left eye recently. And I was getting scared because I didn't know I had a cataract. I thought something was really going wrong with my head or something. Um, I didn't realize how much color I had lost. And so now that I've had eye surgery and I've got 2015 in one eye, which is awesome, um, the painting was completely different. I wasn't struggling through it before, and I think some of this had to do with my vision getting so poor. But um, I wanted to go ahead and paint her and, and see what I could do with her on canvas, and it turned out really nice. I think it turned out pretty good. Yeah, it's very rich, and it looks just like the sculpture. It's Thanks. really nice. Thank you. Thank you. So tell us some, you use really unique and meaningful objects. List mm -hmm. off some objects that you've used before. Um, I'm going to pull up my page, and I will go through some of those and tell sure. you some pieces I've done. Well, the doors, of course, were, like I said, from the time period, they were very heavy. Mm -hmm. um, my arms got pretty buff there for a while, which I was rocking that. I like that. Um, you know, I've used uh, an old church dormer uh, for, the, for one of the, my clan pieces. It was, from the eight, it was from 1896, and that was from a church in Arkadelphia that was falling into disrepair, and it was given to me. And so I did that piece because... The, Back in the day, of course, the clan would actually wear their, their you know, robes and everything to church. The only way you could tell who they were was from their hands or their feet, their shoes. And so I did a piece with shoes in it, uh, in that old church dorm room. But it was very old, and I had a stained glass window from 1896 too, from that that same church. And I used that in a piece. The clan robe was a big deal. I'd ordered a clan robe online. And I was very careful where I went. That's a dark world. You've got to be very careful, you know, ordering things like that. Was it a used row? Yes. And it was from an antiques dealer mm -hmm. in North Carolina. And I went through a dealer here to make sure he was legit before I contacted him. And he said that a family had just brought it into him, that somebody had passed away in their family. They found it. They wanted to go ahead and sell it as quickly as they could. And they sold it. It didn't have a hood with it. Uh, so I made the hood to go with this. But when I got it in the mail... Um, actually, my roommate wouldn't let me bring it in the house until I took it down to First Presbyterian Church, and Ann Russ had to bless it, <laughs> Reverend Ann Russ, <laughs> and she was awesome. But when we pulled it out of the envelope, uh, we noticed there were stains all over it. And when I held it up, I realized that there were blood stains, and it was pretty obvious there were blood stains. So I contacted a friend. She blessed it very quickly, of course. And I contacted a friend of mine, and he had a friend that had worked with the Southern Poverty Law Center with their Klan watch. And I took photographs and sent all this stuff. And then I had another friend look at it who says, oh, yes, that's a protein stain. And so, you know, it, it was blood. And, but it was, a 90, it was like from 1920-something. It was a 90-something-year-old crime scene. It is literally covered in blood. And you can see bloody rope marks on the back of it. I documented all of it. It was Wow, it was something else. So somebody had worn that and hid it and did never pull it out again. Uh, so I, I was going to use the material from that when I ordered it. I was going to use the material to create a piece, and I was going to literally cut it up. And when I saw that, I, couldn't, I just couldn't cut it up. I thought, you know, this is something, this is like a history lesson within itself. So I did a still life of it, put it on a mannequin, made a hood for it, and... 
when and I've got a lot of clan memorabilia I collect a lot of things and I read a lot about them and they always claim to be such a Christian organization well I can prove right now that this is not a Christian organization if if this is their actions and they are physically hurting people to where they are bleeding or dying this person lost a lot of blood apparently in this one and you know to me that's just in, that's just contradicting everything that they say so I wanted people to see that and so that that was a very unique piece that was just so kind of spooky <laughs> well spooky tell us about your your gun piece yeah, that was something else. I was coming back from Eureka Springs. I don't get many vacations. I, I travel a lot with my work, but it's always a work. It's always a work trip. I never just sit around and eat bonbons and be still. It's just I haven't done that in years. Um, I'd gone to Eureka Springs to try to relax for a couple of days with a friend, and we're headed back to Little Rock, and I was listening to the radio, and the Pulse nightclub news had you know come through. I, I saw it that morning. We were getting ready to leave, and we were listening to it on the way home. I was horrified. I just thought, oh my God, really? It was just horrible. And it really bothered me. It upset my stomach. I, mean, I thought I was going to throw up. And it was just the most crass thing. It was just, I can't even describe how I felt. I thought it was horrible. It was just horrible. And so I was very upset over that. And when I got home, I thought, how could somebody just walk in and just sit there and just murder one right after another. It's just twisted. It's it's just bad. And I went ahead and I, I knew a guy that I had bought some things from in the past. He's an a professional antique stealer, and he had an old medical skeleton. And I did some research and found out those old skeletons came from, uh, a lot of times they came from India back in the turn of the century. People were very poor, and these medical companies would come in, and the people were so poor they couldn't bury their dead. So the medical companies would pay them and compensate them and take the bodies, and they would keep the skeletons, you know, and they would sell them to universities and across the nation, and that is the way they used to get these. Now, they don't do that anymore. Um, it's I know that a lot of things changed around the Beijing Olympics. They stopped doing a whole bunch of things around that time period. But anyway, I knew where this old skeleton was, and I thought, you know, I am going to do an automatic weapon made out of human bones. Because automatic weapons, that's what they're for. They're to kill people. You know, I, I, am, I am a kind of a moderate person when it comes to guns. I'm a gun owner. I, I don't have handguns. I don't like handguns. Uh, I have shotguns and rifles that have been handed down to me that were my great-grandfathers. Uh, they, we didn't have any boys in the family. I'm the oldest. I got them, you know. Uh, I used to deer hunt with my father when I was a child. I was in ROTC. I'm an excellent shot, you know. Uh, I don't get worked up over anybody coming to get them or anything. I never did believe that. It's silly. But, you know, an automatic weapon, when I keep hearing people saying, well, I've got to have one to go deer hunting, well, to me, you're a pretty bad shot. If you have to use an automatic weapon to go kill a deer, man, you, I mean, that's just my opinion. And I, I am a deer hunter. I can say if you have to have an automatic weapon to kill a deer, it makes me nervous to be in the woods with you, you know. Um, but I wanted people to look at what, that meant. And so I went ahead and got that medical skeleton. It's very, very uncomfortable to work with. That's probably one of the toughest projects I've ever done mentally. I wouldn't let myself wear gloves intentionally to take that thing apart and build that gun out of. And it felt very, very creepy. It did. I'm not going to lie. It made me kind of nauseated. It made me a little squeamish at first to touch human bones and, and do this project with it. Now, I checked all the laws and everything first to make sure I was okay um, to do that. 
But toward the end, I started feeling almost connected to it in a way. And it reminded me of, you know, you hear people say that back in the day, people used to, when someone would die, they would wash the body. They would get it ready. I believe the Jewish faith still does that. Um, it's it's almost, it's it's an honorable thing. It's a connection, you know, to your loved one. It's a connection to humanity. And I, I took all that into consideration when I was handling this thing. And... Uh, it was it was prayed over. It was blessed. I'm not a super religious person, but I just you know I keep things very simple, and I just thought it was the right thing to do. And before I did the project, uh, I had that done. And so, but I did this gun, and I, it's the exact measurements of an AR-15, and it is pretty powerful. It's pretty powerful stuff. I've had some people that that are almost afraid to look at it. Not a whole lot of people are too thrilled about displaying this, but I haven't even asked many people yet. It's also up in New York right now, and it will be coming down and being on display soon. But it is what it is, you know? I don't see why anybody would be afraid of it. We see it every day in the news. So, As a final thing here, what encouragement would you give artists? Oh, wow, dig deep. You know, one of my favorite terms or one of my favorite things I tell people when they ask me will you come speak to my classroom I'm going well you may not want me speaking to your art class because I'm going to the first sentence I'm going to say is there are no rules in art there's technique and there's procedures but there's no rules and it's not all about money you know and if you're going into it just to make money well power to you that's great there's nothing wrong with that I think that's perfectly fine but if you really want to to experience the arts dig deep dig deep. There's so much more there than what society tells you you should be doing or what you feel like you, you know, you're only allowed to do this or I don't want to offend anybody. You know, it's totally your call, but I would just tell people if you're in the arts, let yourself be in the arts. It's pretty, it's pretty exciting. It's a pretty exciting journey. Is there anything else you would like to add? Well, I hope that, I hope to encourage, I hope my work will encourage other people to think outside the box. You know, I really do. Um, I would love to see some more social justice pieces. I would love to see some more rising social justice artists. I would love to support them. I would love to say, go, you know, have at it. Um, I, I welcome that. I really hope that my work will inspire some other people to, to reach higher. I really do. Well, thanks for talking to me today. Yeah, well, thanks.